Welcome into the Musketeer Report podcast. Today's Monday, December 11th, and this is the post-Crosstown Shootout edition. Xavier wins the Crosstown Shootout in thrilling fashion, 80-77. to 77. Maybe not so thrilling for the Xavier fans listening into this. Musketeers were in control by 17 points, 41-24 to 24 at the half, but they get outscored pretty significantly in the second half. Bearcats put up 53 points in the game's final 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes that I thought were never going to end. That second half took forever. 53 to 39 Cincinnati outscores Xavier in the second half, but Sule Boom comes up huge in the game's closing seconds. And Rick, that's where I want to start. I want to get right to the end of the game before we go bigger picture here, because something you and I have talked a lot about both preseason and here during the season is how valuable a guy like Sule Boom is on your team when he can go and he can draw a foul. And what did he do in those final two seconds of the game? Went right down the lane, drove on a straight line drive right to the bucket, and he got fouled. And not only did he get fouled, but he fouled Victor Lockin out of the game that if they had gone to overtime, UC was going to be without their best big man. So a combination of both plays, Sule Boom ends up winning the game for Xavier in his first game or his first crosstown shootout, rather, as a Musketeer, his first and only one. Uh, Rick, let's start right there with how you felt like the late game execution played out for Xavier. Well, well, on one hand, to get into the spot they were in, which was UC tying the game up in the final minute there the execution wasn't very good, right? I mean, they, they made a lot of mistakes. There were turnovers. They quit getting the ball inside, and I think part of that was a product of trying to run your offense more to take time off the clock and shrink the game at that point, while also going up against two big men for UC. They made the choice to take Jeremiah Davenport out of the game, put in their backup center, Odio Guama, alongside Victor Lockins. So they were playing two big men at once, and I think the combination of Xavier trying to go deeper into the shot clock work the ball around more to make sure they're taking time off and then trying to feed it into the post made so that they weren't getting the same quality of looks that they got earlier in the game. And you ended up with some more forced shots. You end up with a couple of turnovers down the stretch. That wasn't very good, obviously. And then, of course, you had the Desmond Claude and one foul. You have the uh, Kiki Tandy blow by and one dunk for Landers Nolly. There are some things on the defensive side that, that didn't go well either. But at the same time, I mean, Sule Boom, it seems like whenever you need to, you don't really need to draw up much of a play. I mean, in this case, it was really just putting Victor Lockin in a high ball screen. And, and quite honestly, he's not very good in those situations. But Sule Boom is so good at getting into opponents' bodies. And, you know, Sean Miller pointed out that in the Indiana game, they tried to do something similar and just didn't make the shot and you don't get the call and so be it. But in this case, Sule Boom was able to draw the foul, get to the free throw line, and win the game for Xavier because of his ability to do those things. And uh, it, it is a, a special talent, the way he gets to the free throw line, the way he draws foul calls. But even just aside from all of that, yes, he got tired in this game and and didn't play as well in the second half until those, those final plays. But overall, he leads you in scoring. Defensively, he's been much better than I honestly expected him to be. It, it's hard to find more superlatives to use for Sole Boom than I've already used this season, but I I can't tell you how high I am on the guy right now. I, just, I love the way he plays. I love everything about what he's brought to this team because it's exactly what they needed at that position. Yeah, he finished his Xavier's leading score, 21 points. David DeJulius was the game's leading scorer. DeJulius finished with 22 points. And 
really on UC's side. DeJulius was the reason they were in the game there at the end. He was trying to will the Bearcats back into it, and he he, he pretty nearly did. I mean, he I mean he, he got them he back did. in, but they tied it up, right? Like, yeah, the, yeah, and and he finished with twenty two. DeJulius was three for five from three, seven for sixteen from the field overall. Lockin finished with sixteen. Nobody else for UC in double figures. Um, Jeremiah Davenport, maybe the most notably there, somebody who's playing in his fourth shootout, a Cincinnati native Davenport finishes with six points on two of seven shooting. And both of those, uh, shots that he made were from three. So, you know, when you look at that, that UC lineup, and we talked a lot about the Julius in our preview show last week, how did you think Xavier did defensively there? I, we know what happened in the second half, Rick. It, and again, it was a slow start to the second half that then continued throughout the second half. But where was that uh, defensive effort in the second half? It wasn't there. I mean, they, defensively, yeah. it was a stark contrast from the way things went early to the way things went after halftime. And that's been honestly something we've seen a lot with this team throughout the year. I mean, it hasn't always been this bad. And sure, in the West Virginia game, they got behind early and then found a way to ramp the defense up down the stretch. And you you kind of look at that as, oh, okay, maybe things are getting better from that perspective. But in reality, that's just another game where they really didn't play a full 40 minutes of defense. And I think that's probably the most frustrating thing for Sean Miller and his staff right now is the inconsistency on that end of the floor. But I think you have a couple things working there and one we've talked about a lot it's just you know they don't have very many good defenders Zach Fremantle is not a good defender Adam Kunkel is going to be in the right places a lot of times going to be for the most part the right things from a team defensive perspective but physically he's not as gifted as a lot of other wings are going to be at this level he's not as long he's not as athletic Sule Boom has given up a lot of weight and strength to these players, although his quickness has served him fairly well, I think, in some of these matchups. But he, he's probably an what I would call an adequate defender, but not a plus defender in the Big East level. So I think that's where you start with the issues defensively. And then the other thing that I think you really saw pl- come into play in this game was the lack of depth and the lack of productivity off the bench and being forced to play some of these guys, specifically if we go with Sule Boom, he played 39 minutes in this game. Being forced to play your starter so many minutes, I think, is taking its toll to some extent on the defensive side. And part of it, too, may just be, I don't know if it's a hangover effect from the way they used to play in previous years or just who some of these guys are naturally. Maybe they're just more offensive-minded players who have never been as into the defensive side of the ball. But I think Sean Miller hit the nail on the head when he talked about the issue to start some of these second halves are his team gets too comfortable with trading baskets with teams. They feel like they're on a roll. Things are going well offensively. And it's just like, oh, we'll just outscore you. We're just going to trade baskets. And this team is in Arizona. They're good. They're efficient offensively. And and they can put some points on you. But they're not quite Arizona in that regard. And, and Arizona can afford to do that, actually. Like, let's just trade baskets. You ain't going to keep up with us. It doesn't really matter who you are. Xavier can't afford to play that way. And they've got to find a way to tighten things up over the long haul. And I don't know if the answer to that is finding better bench depth or if ultimately it's just going to be Sean Miller getting through to these guys over the long haul, pounding it into them that you have to be disciplined, you have to focus, and you have to be tough for 40 minutes to be able to do the job defensively. 
Do you think there's something that's going on that's causing this slow start to the second half? That is an interesting point. Um, I think it's mostly that, like Sean Miller said, the team is just way too content to come out and trade baskets. And I don't know what it is about that that start of the second half. Is it if it's a a lack of focus initially that that has them playing too carefree, or in this game, if it was just the fact that they had the seventeen point lead coming out of halftime that that made it hard that they're playing to the score a little bit there. I'm not sure what it is. And some of these games, like when you look at it, some of these games, you're, you're not there's not a huge discrepancy between Xavier and their opponent during that first four minute war of the second half. But when you look at the whole of the season and all of the marquee games, all six of them, they're losing every single one of those games, except for the West Virginia game. That that becomes a trend at some point and, and it adds up over time. So it's definitely something that they want to get fixed. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's talk more about how Xavier played in the second half defensively with uh, their post players, Zach Fremantle, Jack Nunji. Overall, they played great as we kind of expected them to. But defensively, where did you see uh, Zach and Jack stacking up? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say to your point, like they kicked ass in this game. They that that, that is really kind of the where Xavier won this game is beating up UC in the post, which is what I think a lot of us expected. Early in the game, it was Zach Freeman working against Jeremiah Davenport, and he, he had the dunk right off to start the game. They got him on a couple high-low actions where they just lobbed it right over the top of Jeremiah Davenport, and Zach was able to walk him up the lane and give himself an easy finish. And then there was another dunk that he got later in the first half. In the second half, it was a lot more Jack Nungy working against Victor Locken. He also hit a three. Um, and then I think there was a possession where he got somebody else switched on to him in the post. It might have been Odio Guama, but he was able to finish against him. So both of them had a good half offensively, kind of carried the offense through stretches. I thought they played pretty well overall. But you did see, and we've seen this going back to last year even, there were times in the second half where Xavier was just way too easy to score on inside. And Victor Locken won some one-on-one moments against Jack Nungy on that end of the floor. Like, that it just is what it is. I mean, overall, Jack Nungy was the much better player. You take him 10 out of 10 times between those two guys. But I think you saw some of the flaws of Xavier's defense during that second half stretch. And it starts with those guys inside. It's like one, they don't provide much rim protection at all in terms of block shots from a help side perspective. And then two, one-on-one, not great defenders, either one of them, really. And I, there are times and certain matchups where Jack Nungy does better than others. But Overall, I think you saw that Victor Locken kind of exposed them a little bit in the second half. And I think one of the common themes with Jack and where he slips up sometimes defensively is it just doesn't seem like he's built to play extended minutes. When he gets into that 25, 30 minute range over that, he seems to wear down a bit, too. And I think maybe you see that appear on the, the defensive side more than anything. On uh, Cincinnati's side, Victor Locke, and I, I mentioned he finished with the 16 points, seven of nine from the field. Uh, he stepped out and hit that three. So I, I thought Locken had a really solid game. I mean, we kind of expected him to be somebody that they would need to play well if they were going to be in this game. But I thought he stepped up to the challenge. Him and DeJulius both played pretty well. Outside of that, they didn't get a ton. But Locken and DeJulius played well. I don't want people to think that like I'm just a, a victim of the moment right here when I say this, but I think Victor Locken is pretty clearly their second best player after David Julius. Like I would put Landers Nolly at this point as their third best player after those two guys. I think Locken just gives them more on a more consistent basis, and 
He's involved on the glass. Like, I don't think he's setting guys up a whole lot or making them better from that perspective. But I think overall, he's the better team player. With Landers Nolly, it's just simply a matter of, is he going to hit some threes for us today or not? Because other than that, it seems like he brings almost nothing to their team. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and in this game, you had Colby Jones locking him up defensively. So he, he he was, I mean, it felt to me like he was almost a complete zero in this game. Yeah. Yeah. He, Landers Nolly finished with nine points, 0 for 3 from 3. Three for nine from the field, and he had three free throws, four rebounds, and he picked up three fouls in 36 minutes. It also just, three turnovers, by the way. And and the three turnovers. Yeah, Cincinnati finished with 15 turnovers in the game. Xavier scored 21 points off of those 15 turnovers. Xavier had 12 turnovers. Cincinnati scored 14 points off of those 12 turnovers. Um, let's talk Let's talk to about the, the end of the game because a, I think a lot was made about the end of this game and how it went down and West Miller's timeout and should it have been granted and, and all that back and forth. But I think the narrative got overtaken a little bit about the end of the game and how much credit was being put into the timeout and everything else, because Cincinnati still was going to need a home run pl- a pass and a miracle three to even stay in the game in the first place. And I think there was a bigger point that I texted you about with about three minutes and 40 seconds left. There was a media timeout. It was the final media timeout of the game. It was the under four media. There was 16 seconds of game action. And then UC made a field goal. And Wes Miller called his final timeout. And I texted you and I said, did I miss something here? Or why is Wes Miller using his final timeout with about three and a half minutes left? And what could end up being a tight game where you need that timeout 16 seconds after you have a media that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, and I didn't really notice anything coming out of the timeout that they couldn't have waited for. I don't know if I missed something, if there was something that he really wanted to hammer, if there was a substitution. I don't know what it was, and I haven't had a chance to go back and rewatch that final sequence to know for sure. But it seemed really weird to me, and then it ended up coming back in the very end to play a huge role in the narrative of how the last couple of seconds played out. Yeah, no, I mean, we talked about it at the time, like you mentioned, and I thought it was strange, too. It just seemed like to burn whatever it was. And I, I, I'm same as you. I meant to go back and watch that specific part. I watched a bunch of other things, but didn't watch that little sequence there to figure out if there was a reason may, that he may have called it that, that stood out more the second time around. But whatever it was that he called that, I mean, like it's too early for there to be a necessary offensive defensive substitution at that point of the game where it's really going to kill you. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's anything that was worth burning your last timeout 16 seconds after you had just had a media timeout in the way he did. So I thought that was a misstep on his part. I mean, you know, we can talk a little bit about Wes because I, I think to some extent it's interesting to look at where the future of this game is going with the way Xavier has dominated it in the past and the fact that UC is going up to the Big 12 level. And and I've mentioned before that I could see UC being in trouble with Wes because he didn't make the tournament last year this loss pretty much solidified the fact that they're not going to make the tournament this year with the way that they scheduled. I mean, Eve, honestly, I don't know if there are enough wins in the AAC for them to make the tournament right now. And if there are, it consists of winning at Houston, winning at Memphis. I mean, some things in addition to winning big home games that just probably aren't going to happen. So you missed the tournament this year. If you're UC that's two straight years for West Miller and four straight years as a program, people are going to be restless. You go into the Big 12 next year with a roster that is probably worse than the one that you have this year in terms of your talent. 
that's probably not going to go very well. That seems like a tough year to make the NCAA tournament. Now you're sitting at three straight years of not making it with West, four straight or five straight years as a program. How patient are they going to be at that point? I mean, it, unless things like really start looking like it's possible that next year could be his last year if that thing isn't turned around. More than likely, though, hopefully he would show some improvement next year as they move into a t- tougher conference and things start looking a little bit better on both ends of the floor. And they say, okay, you've got one more year to get this thing fixed or you're done. I mean, I, I just don't think at, at either one of these programs, Xavier, we saw it, Travis Steele missed the tournament four straight years and they moved on. If UC does that same thing on top of the two years prior to him that they didn't make the tournament, I would think that they're going to move on. So, I mean, in terms of what I've seen from Wes Miller, it's been concerning this year. And and he did make a couple of adjustments in this game that I thought were were probably good moves. One of them was not using that one two two press that they've been using for most of the season where they've been getting zero turnovers, but giving up all types of easy baskets on the back end of it. I thought that was smart against Xavier, that they, that they didn't really use that until it was desperation time. The other thing that I thought was smart in the final minutes that helped them down the stretch, but I don't know why he didn't do it sooner, especially in this matchup, was playing Odio Guama and Victor Locken at the same time, going bigger when Xavier's going to play two bigs, two guys that are essentially centers in today's college basketball landscape at the same time. Why wouldn't you do the same thing when Jeremiah Davenport is killing you on the offensive end and getting dominated on the defensive end? Try something else, mix it up there, go a little bit bigger. I thought that was smart to do it at the end of the game. I'm not sure why he didn't do it sooner. But there are some other things, like in terms of how they run their offense, their inability to create ball movement and good looks, the fact that none of the guys seem to really have a defined role. There's not a lot of discipline. I mean, what difference is there between what we saw Jeremiah Davenport do yesterday and for most of the season to what we saw Jerome Hunter do last year for Xavier? And so I I think that's kind of the issues that I see with Wes and things that I would think that he'll have to fix going forward. And if he doesn't, I, I don't know how patient they'll be. On the other thing too, from a fan patient's perspective, he was a John Cunningham hire. And John Cunningham went out just now and he hired Scott Satterfield as a new head football coach who I'm not sure you see fans are thrilled about. Like they're happy, but they're not thrilled about it. They're just sort of satisfied, I guess. I uh, Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I think, I mean, I think the optimistic I, ones feel the way you just said. I think there are a, a, a whole lot of UC fans that feel pretty bummed out about the way it played out. I think they feel like they settled. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a really good word for it. I, I think they feel like they settled. So when you look at Wes from the frame of reference of the John Cunningham hire of Wes to then looking at Scott Satterfield and just overall apathy and frustration with the athletic department, Cincinnati was in such a good place with Luke Fickle making the college football playoff. It looked like, you know, you're getting this young guy, Wes Miller, going to have things going on the upward trajectory. Now, all of a sudden, you're probably not going to make the tournament for two straight years. You've lost two straight shootouts under Wes, including your first one at home. Then you go and you hire Scott Satterfield after Luke Fickle leaves for Wisconsin. And all of a sudden, there's this frustration that's building up that maybe the patience isn't there as much as it was before. Now, Wes is 10 games into his second year at a high major school. I'm not going to sit here and say that he's not going to figure this thing out. But to your point, and to anybody who's 
followed college basketball in the year 2022, you know that when you're looking at a roster like this with the transfer portal and the way things can shift around so quickly for better or for worse, maybe West could go hit the transfer portal hard and things could look a whole lot better next year than they look on paper right now than they will. But next year, just like you said, Rick, going to the Big 12 when the last time you made the tournament was 2019 in no tournament in 20 and you haven't made the tournament since. And this year, assuming you're not beating Memphis or, or Houston consistently enough to, to make the tournament again. Now we're talking about a situation where it's 2024 and you're sitting there in March and you're still not hearing your name called. And now you're going to have to wait till 2025, potentially in the second year of the big 12 or running it back again. You know, that's, that's where things start to get dicey, especially with the shootout coming back to CentOS next year. Now you're potentially staring at 0-3 without another NCAA tournament berth. Those aren't the things that stack up a lot of goodwill for you. Well, and and to your point, and then I'll I'll move this back to Xavier because I have a question for you about it. But to your point about John Cunningham, the whole it's been like riding this high to some extent for him, and he kind of avoided catching any of the stink of what happened when he had to move on from John Brannon. But now all of a sudden those things are starting to catch up to him. Cause it was like, there, there seemed to be some confusion about who hired Luke fickle, right? That, that was a Mike bone hire, not a, not a John Cunningham hire. John Cunningham has been taking all this credit for extending him, but there was no difference between Luke fickle and those other guys before him. He, he ultimately left. So your extensions, like, and keeping him happy and all those great things that you're supposedly doing to keep Luke fickle around didn't really work. He still left you when the time was right for him. And, you made an uninspiring hire on the football side, as you just alluded to. And now the West thing is starting to look like, uh, was that really a good hire? And by the way, while all this was played out behind the scenes in court, you had to pay John Brandon that full buyout because it turns out the way you handled that wasn't right. So I think some of these things are going to start to be looking not so great on John Cunningham's behalf in the next year to two years. And that's where things get interesting. Like, does UC move on from him before they let him even make another hire if things go poorly with the basketball program and football program for the next year or two as you move into the Big 12? And that's a, that's tough to d- distinguish between, like, how much of this is just we weren't prepared for the Big 12 yet in terms of talent and how much of this is we have two bad hires right now. It's going yeah. to be and tough. It, and again, Scott Satterfield may crush it and Wes Miller may hit the transfer portal hard and, and their sure. recruits and Jizzle James and and you know everybody else may pan out and, and they, they could be right there on the doorstep of the Big 12 next year. But we're just too early yeah. to say. And there are starting to be reasons popping up that are that are more than just like little red flags or little notifications. It's kind of like, ah, uh, that doesn't look great for for John Cunningham yeah. and definitely for Wes Miller and the way the basketball situation is right now. But here's my question sure. to move it back to the Xavier side of things. How big of an accomplishment from a Xavier fan perspective, how big of an accomplishment is four straight shootout wins? Like, where do you stack that up? Where do you rank that in terms of like, makes you feel good, gets you excited? You know, I mean, it's not it's not second weekend of the NCAA tournament. I don't think it's not as good as as doing that, probably even just once. No. So, yeah. All right. So I I did some thinking about this. This 
past year was the fourth time in program history that Xavier had won three straight shootouts. They did it from 84 to 86. They won three in a row from 2007 to 2009, and then from 13 to 15. Those were the previous three. Then, of course, the last three years, they won three in a row. But it always felt, right, like you got to that fourth one, and what were you going to be able to do to take that take that next step? Could you win that fourth one in a row? Could you get Zach Fremantle and Kiki Tandy to go 4-0 and against Cincinnati? Could you make it so that no UC player had beaten Xavier? And when I look at the accomplishments of a program like this that has taken so many steps from you know, all the way, 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 way back, you know, and and before they were in the A10, in the A10, to then being in the A10, to then being in the Big East, so many steps that this program has taken to go four straight years without losing to your biggest rival and a high major rival in a city like Cincinnati with so much talent around here in this area. I think it's a huge, huge deal. And I hope that Xavier fans that are listening, I know that they know to appreciate this. But to me, I hope that people appreciate this as much as they should, because I think they should. I think that this is a really huge deal. And to me, outside of winning the Big East and outside of, like you said, having a lot of success in the NCAA tournament, this is a this is maybe right there below that at, at number three for me, because as much as UC has struggled as a program, as much as Xavier has been a better program in the last two decades. They just haven't been able to win that fourth win in a row. And I think that, and to do it on the road too, I think it's huge. Would you rather have the fourth Crosstown shootout win or a guaranteed regular season Big East championship? Oh, I I think you have to take the Big East championship, right? I don't know. I think that's a tough guarantee. Because, because like that's what, a really tough. Because I don't look at it as just one crosstown shootout win, right? Like just just beating UC this year is definitely not enough to give up a a Big East regular season champion. Oh, you're saying you're saying the fourth one in a row, or yeah, winning I'm saying, the Big East. I'm saying four crosstown shootout wins in a row, or the Big East. Um, one one Big East regular season championship, and that's like hard to really like way out uh, i think I, I don't know what the right answer is there i'm sure some people are going to be screaming at us one way and some will be screaming the other but all i know is i love this rivalry i think it's really fun and and to your point i think anytime you can get bragging rights like that four straight years an entire college career at this at this point in the way we are with the transfer portal and covid years and grad transfers and all this other stuff that doesn't mean what it used to you know a four-year span in college used to mean everything it's like that is the entire lifespan of a college athlete's career. Now it's like everyone is out there for either two years or five or six years, it seems like. So it's a little bit different now, but that is a big deal. And it is fun for the rivalry. And and I think Xavier fans should be excited about it too. But I do think part of the reason maybe some of the excitement is tempered is because one, UC just hasn't been that good recently. And then two, I think it would mean more if it was like four in a row over Mick Cronin. Yeah. And when he has it going I, or four in the row over Bob Huggins or maybe Wes Miller at some point, but like to do it during transition years when it's the John Brandon thing. And then Wes Miller, just, I think that probably took away from some of the, the hype surrounding that accomplishment and making it quite as fun as it otherwise would be. 
And look, Rick Broering and Paul Fritschner are the last two people on God's green earth that are going to sit here and say that the Crosstown shootout, which is the best college basketball game in the country. Don't say the has, L word. Do not say hey, the L word on this podcast. I was going to say has lost a little excitement. I was okay. not going to use <laughs> the L word. Good. But because in all seriousness, like how did that not get retired with Doherty? That's incredible that we're still going, that the Enquirer is going to continue to use th- that term. Uh, was it not tongue in cheek? I kind of got the sense that he asked it tongue in cheek. I don't. I mean, but like, I just maybe you guys are the ones that keep writing the column, though. So it's like, I don't know. I get he was on the other side of the column this year for the most part. But it's like, why do you keep using the L word? It's it's a, a unique and weird word. And you've used it for like a decade now to explain this game. And you flip flopped back back and forth both sides from year to year. It's just it's just an absurd premise, a, a silly, lazy storyline at this point. And people have been laughing about it openly for so long. It's like what I like the people over there. I like Jason Williams. I like uh, Jason, the sports editor who is handling it. Jason Hoffman. I'm not, I don't understand why someone isn't stepping up. I like Adam Baum. I don't know why someone isn't stepping up and just saying like, quit using this freaking word as it relates to this game. It's very strange. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, But, but I think to your point about this game this year and the, the UC teams of the past, this isn't Trayvon Blewett, Gary Clark, Lance Stevenson, J.P. Makura. You know, this isn't Yancey Gates, Kenny Freeze. This is Wes Miller in his second shootout with a team of maybe some misfits. And now all of a sudden, they're, it's a UC team that's barely a top 75 team playing a Xavier team that's clearly better. This is not the top 10 teams of old where I think if you said, hey, uh, Xavier's number 11 in the country and UC's number 19 and they're playing at fifth third arena for four, you know, four of those types of shootouts. I don't think many Xavier fans throw up a a red flag to that. But when you're saying sure a a big East regular season, when I guess what when it boils down to it, if you really want to think about it, would you rather be Xavier this year or would you rather be 2018 Xavier? I mean, isn't that kind of what it boils down to, right? Would you rather would you rather be that one seed or would you rather be Xavier right now? They've won four in a row. And I mean, I think most people would say that they would probably want to be that number one seed. Now, maybe you win the Big East, you're not a number one seed, but I think the point remains. At the same time, though, I have one for you, Rick. Okay. Somebody asked, actually, uh, we, were, we were having a, a discussion at Chatterbox about this because we were having the same kind of kind of argument where they were asking me about how much this game means to Xavier as a program. They're trying to get the the scale of, of this game. And I was saying, well, you know, in the, in, in the grand scheme of the computer metrics, like if you're just, if you're just putting this game on paper, you'd probably, you'd rather be UConn than like a Yukon win. I don't say you'd rather yeah. beat Yukon, but Yukon win means more to Xavier's resume than, than a, a Cincinnati win maybe avoiding losing to Cincinnati, but that's getting yeah, too much. I, I actually saw it. the segment that you're talking about. You were right. I, they, they were wrong on, uh, on the show that you're talking about that you guys did where you, you made the claim that, I mean, I, I don't want to do this because I am anti, like both teams have bigger fish to fry. And this game doesn't mean that much to these teams anymore. It means one more to one side than it does the other. I think those arguments are stupid. It's a great rivalry game. It matters a lot to people on both sides. And I get their point about, in a year where Xavier doesn't feel like a top 15 team, or, or I mean, right now, not even a ranked team, 
and doesn't necessarily feel like a team that's going to go deep into the tournament. Yeah, a rivalry game like this and a win over your rival and bragging rights over UC may feel more significant than in a year where you've got a chance for a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. I get that argument to some extent, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, there there are more meaningful individual games for Xavier at this point in Big East play. I mean, a win over UConn would be bigger this year. Winning at Villanova with the place of horrors that that has been for Xavier would be a big deal this year, even though Villanova had been struggling earlier in the season. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I would rather have the big marquee Big East wins this year than the win over UC. And I realize that's kind of contradictory to what we were just talking about with how big of an accomplishment the the four crosstown shootouts in a row mean. But if you're just talking about like where the state of the rivalry is at and what it means on a, a yearly basis, this year's game by itself does not mean more to Xavier than what a win over UConn would mean or a win at Villanova or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I agreed with your take on the on the show that I watched. Yeah, that, that was exactly what I was getting to, because then their follow up question was, would you rather lose to Cincinnati 10 years in a row and be guaranteed a, a four seed or better in the tournament? Absolutely. Or, or, yeah, that's what I Now, then they bumped it down to a nine seed. And I said, oh, no. nine, a nine seed, I can't do that. But if you gave me a protected seed in the tournament every year and said I had to put up with some UC trash talk for a little while, uh, where do I sign? That's not even in question. I mean, the only yeah. schools that wouldn't take that are Duke. Yeah. And like, I mean, Kentucky fans would probably say no, but that's probably more out of hubris right now than it is actual like what would be the better yeah. call for them to make. But yeah, it's no doubt if you can get a protected seed in the tournament, you lock that up and take that guarantee over <laughs> anything else in all of college athletics. I mean, that's not yeah, that's not yeah. even close. But if you bump it down to a nine seed, I don't think that then I think you, you flip it the other way. It's a no doubter that you'd, you'd rather beat UC because I think most Xavier fans expect the, the future with Sean Miller to for Xavier to have a chance for better than a nine seed more years than not. Yeah. So now where do, where do you see this, Rick, before we get back to a few things to wrap up the show about the individual game? I want to ask you about the shootout with now Sean Miller winning the shootout in his first return game back, his first shootout. He wins it at UC. Then he comes back to Cintas Center next year. Now, the Xavier roster is going to be very, very, very different from what it is this year. But... You have Sean Miller and West Miller, and you felt like Sean already had the upper hand to begin with. But now you're coming back home next year, and we've laid out all, all of our thoughts already on kind of where West Miller and everything stands. But how good must Sean and this program feel with the way they're set up in this rivalry right now? Yeah, if they can take a step back and, and look at the bigger picture and, and stop being mad about the fact that they gave up 50 points in the second half again, I think you're right. They would probably be like, ah, this is we got a real good chance to run off a couple more wins against UC to get this thing started. And um, the, the rivalry is certainly in a good spot for Xavier right now. But my guess is Sean is more worried about the fact that it ended up being a close finish. And, you know, I, I mean, his, his post-game press conferences are great to listen to because he is able to acknowledge it at both times. Like he acknowledged that was a fun game. It's a great atmosphere. It's a great rivalry. We're happy to, to learn our lessons in a win, happy to come away with a win. But then at the same time, then he just went in on his team for the next 
however many minutes of the press conference and talked about all the things that they didn't do right. And uh, he's so dead on, I think, with with everything that that he points out in the press conferences. They're so poignant and just like very directed at uh, his players, but also easy to follow for fans as well. That uh, I do enjoy listening to those. And I thought that was that was pretty apparent the way we approached the the post game is that he's just right now. He's just a little upset with the way the defense is going. Yep. Uh, we've talked a lot about Sule Boom on this show, Rick, but we have not mentioned Colby Jones, who I thought closed the game pretty well the other day against Cincinnati. And he came up big uh, right toward the end when Cincinnati or when uh, Xavier needed him, finished as a team's third leading score, 15 points, five of 10 from the field, only one of three from three, four, six from the line, seven rebounds, four assists. Uh, Colby Jones, give me your thoughts. Well, and and probably the one thing that doesn't show up in the the box score, but was most key for Xavier in terms of winning this game is what did everyone say UC needed to do? I've already said it on this podcast. Make shots from the outside. David Julius Landers Nolly need to get off for big scoring nights, right? And what did Colby Jones do? Completely eliminated Landers Nolly from the equation in terms of him having a big night. I mean, yeah, he got to nine points, but it was on an inefficient performance and he was not a factor at all from, from the outside. Uh, so that to me was his most important contribution. Then in the second half late in the game, Colby really essentially put the game away with about, what was it, four minutes or three and a half minutes to go, I think. I mean, he had a couple baskets in a row, and that one and one finish that he had with the the great drive where he got downhill, drew the contact, and finished through it. That, to me, okay, this thing is over. Like, Colby just shut it down, and unfortunately for Xavier, they didn't execute well over the next two and a half minutes and let UC tie it up after uh, having an 11-point lead with over three minutes to play. But, yeah, to your point, Colby Jones filling the stat sheet once again, locking up defensively one-on-one against Landers Nolly, and then doing what I thought should have been the closing of the game there late in the second half was he really stood out, and both he and Sule – it seems like you now have two guys and it's not as natural for Colby to step up in those moments and be that go- go-to guy. So it's nice that Sule is more than willing to do so, but you have both of them and both of them have been able to do the same types of things, which is just come off a ball screen, basically get downhill and attack going towards the basket, which is exactly what Sean says he wants in those late game situations. You want something going to the basket. You want to put pressure on the refs to potentially call a foul. And they've been able to do that. Yeah. Kiki Tandy came in for a minute and it looked like maybe Kiki was coming in to try and bridge the gap to the under eight media timeout. And it did not go well. Kiki came in, missed a three and then allowed a blow by dunk. And that sent the game to the under eight and Kiki came out of the game. Not exactly the best uh, sequence for Kiki after he's had some pretty good games to start the year. But now again, against a high major talent, it, it just didn't go well. I assume the reason he came in at that moment was because Des Claude had really struggled in the second half. Desmond Claude had some great moments in the first half. Second half did not go as well for him. And then obviously he ends up committing that last foul on David DeJulius that allowed UC to tie the game. So he came back on and ended up making the mistake that I think Xavier was probably trying to avoid. And and that's probably why they put Kiki Tandy in the game when they did there for that minute. But from my perspective, Immediately when it happened, I I was sitting next to a kid who who worked for the UC student newspaper, and he was, I mean, into the game, very into the game, uh, (laughs) very worked up at this point. And I said, oh, wow, Tandy's guarding Nolly because they were taking the ball. UC was taking the ball out underneath their own basket. And I was like, they should go right to him. 
go right to Nolly. They don't on the underneath out of bounds play, but then on the very next possession was when he caught the pass. I think he kind of gave a little head fake, blew right past Kiki. Kiki fouled him from behind, and he dunked for an and one. And it was just like, I've seen enough of this to know what's going to happen in that situation. It's like, I know Des Claude is a freshman. I know he was struggling there in that second half. And I think that's the reason they tried to, to put Kiki in for a minute. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was another reason, but I assume it was because of Des Claude's struggles at that point. But I even think if nothing else, just Desmond Claude's length and athleticism at six, five gives you a better chance, especially in a matchup where you're going up against Landers Nolly, then Kiki is going to have defensively. So I, I was a little surprised about that minute, to be honest. I think it was due to Des Claude's struggles, but yeah, it just, it did not work out for Xavier at all. And that was, that was the end of that experiment. Do you think there's anything more overall to look at from that one minute for Kiki, or is that just, Hey, one bad minute? Well, I mean, let's face it. The last two games he's played one minute. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yep. So we're kind of back in a situation we were in last year. Maybe, maybe the, the coaching staff, May have not done the best job last year, but maybe the, they weren't wrong about everything last year. There, yep. there are certain things that I think we've seen as trends by this point. And um, once we get into high major play, it's Kiki struggles. And yeah, no doubt. Uh, the other one, Cesar Edwards. He this got is in the, the bigger game one we to saw, me. He got in the game and he got in the game earlier than the closing minutes uh, You know, of a blowout game. We haven't seen him in the game for really extended meaningful minutes and he didn't play a ton in this game he got two minutes but he got in there in a situation where it mattered and even though he only played two minutes Cesar Edwards coming off the bench I think we all kind of looked at each other and went whoa what what's going on here so it's interesting because to me uh that felt very much like Deontay just hasn't really been giving them anything he's been struggling I think Cesar has been coming along a little bit in terms of figuring out the the new way of doing things under the new coaching staff and and getting closer to where they want him to be in terms of of having a feel for everything. That felt to me more like, okay, they're trying to give Cesar some of those backup minutes at the center spot, the, the minutes that Deontay would normally get because he obviously didn't check in. The problem for Cesar is those two minutes went as poorly as they could have gone i think i mean he, he takes a three which i mean sean didn't address him by name in the postgame press conference but he mentioned that we've got certain guys coming in off the bench that are trying to do things that we're not asking them to do have to imagine cesar uh firing up a three in that situation would would probably fall under that category he also had the bad turnover and i believe he got beat defensively during that short time that he was in on at least one occasion so yeah, and he didn't set a he didn't set a great screen either. So there I don't you know go. If you saw that. Yeah, I I think I missed that part. But anyway, moral of the story is nothing about those two minutes went well for Cesar Edwards, at least from uh, an outsider's perspective. Maybe the coaching staff will have a slightly different view of that, but uh, I know for a fact they're not going to like the way those two minutes went. So then that becomes the question of what what's next for that backup spot at the five. And I don't know how many minutes they're going to need per game from that spot, but there are going to be certain matchups where Jack gets in early foul trouble or Jack and Zach are both in foul trouble where you're going to need someone to give you five plus minutes at that backup big man position. And I, I mean, right to this point, they've really gotten nothing from that spot. And it seems like they're, they're trying to figure it out still. Maybe, 
making that shift from Deontay to Cesar, but we'll see what the next step is because it didn't seem to go well in this game for Cesar. We'll see if he gets another chance. Rick, do you have any more news, notes, nuggets from the Crosstown shootout or this past week before I ask a couple of things about this coming week? No, I don't think so. I mean, it was a fun right. game. I enjoyed it. I think you enjoyed it. We had a good oh. time watching the uh, the way that finished and how it coincided with uh, the the spread of the game and everything else. So it was it was a good time there yesterday. Yeah, and and that goes back exactly what we were talking about last week, where we knew the line was going to come out and it was going to be close, and it was like, hey, look, you know, I tr- I tried to say Vegas is built on gold buildings for a reason, and they had, and even when it was seventeen points at halftime, I just I looked around, and I said, you know what, like this is the shootout, it's at Cincinnati, Bearcats are going to make a run at some point. I didn't think that they'd come back as much as they did. I I'll, I will be the first one to admit. I didn't think so. And I don't think Fifth Third Arena did either, because even with even with three minutes, when Colby got that and one, that sent it to the under four. <clears throat> I don't know if you looked around and, or really noticed it, but there were a handful, I would say, not like a quarter of the arena, but there were fans that left when Colby oh, yeah. got that and one at the under four. Um, I'm not saying it like emptied out by any means. I'm just saying no, I looked but around there were people and saw in the some very right next to me. Yeah. There were some very frustrating frustrated people hurriedly grabbing their jackets and storming out up the aisles. And I, I was just looking at everybody and going every time Xavier is punched in this game, Cincinnati is punched back and Xavier hasn't landed the knockout shot yet. And he thought maybe that Colby and one was, but I was like, man, this is shootout. Why would you leave early in this game? And if I was a Cincinnati fan, and had left early and had missed a Julius banked in three to tie the game. And then the Bearcats went in overtime. I mean, you're never living that down, right? You're saying you were at the game, but you can never, you, you never saw the end of the game. Then it didn't end up battering. I'm lying to my friends at that about that one. I never went to that game. <laughs> I would never say I went to that and left. Oh, you were never there in the first place. I would never admit to it if I were one of those people. Oh, those people. I mean, I understand. Well, no, Maybe I'm no, at a different they, point in my the life. Worst. They're the worst. Why stay for two hours? instead of two hours and seven minutes like yes. what is the difference and the whole like don't give me the beat traffic it's not a, it's not a real thing like no one beats traffic by leaving five minutes sooner yeah i, I just I, i'm not a leave early i cannot tell you the last time i left early from a sporting event just in general maybe that's because i'm at a different point in life where i don't have kids or like a responsibility and I'm just, I'm hanging out there the whole time. But to your point, one, you've been there the whole time. And two, I remember I was at the Reds pirates game and it was like a 10 run game. It was going into the ninth inning or whatever it was. And I remember everybody was flooding out and it was a nice summer night. And I remember there was a whole group of people that were walking by me and it was my girlfriend, her whole family was there and they were kind of getting antsy. And I looked at the people that were just random strangers. And I just was, I was just, we were all just messing around. I go, ah, well, you all never know what you're going to miss here. And then the fight happened like five minutes later. Could you imagine you leave early? You missed that. I mean, I know people have responsibilities, but I just can't, you just never know what's going to happen. And the leave early crowd drives me nuts. I can live with leaving with 10 minutes to go in regulation because you're down by double digits at that point, And there's a big play. I can't understand the person who leaves with like three minutes to go or two minutes to go or something because something went against their team. It's like at that point, you've already been there for the whole game. Why not just stay and see it through? Yeah. All right. So this, this coming week, Rick, 
Xavier plays two teams and their combined Ken Palm ranking. You add them together. 409. 409. Is that something we've started doing? Is adding teams Ken Palm rankings together? It's a it's it's a marquee week in the Xavier basketball program history. You have Southern on Tuesday, but the reason we're going to talk about this more is because Big East play opens this week. Georgetown is Friday night, Xavier's second true road game of the season. Georgetown comes in at a whopping 164th on Ken Palm, and they'll be coming off a 19-point loss to Syracuse. Um, Over under 1,500 people at Capital One Arena on Friday night after exams have finished. Under. Well under. Under 1,000? I think so. Not including bench staff. Not including the benches. I'm talking about about actual fans in the building. I think you'll be under 1,000 fans. What have they been? Haven't they been averaging like 500? Well, is that not true? I've I've been seeing pictures of this place with like literally 35 people in it. Yeah, I don't know what they're announcing. There's no way that they're announcing in the hundreds. They're definitely announcing season ticket holders, but there's no way that. Yeah, the other day they were giving away. It's in the free tickets to every D.C. resident. And then they have like less than 500 people there. Or is that not true? It was something like that. Yeah, that was the picture that I tweeted out that, yeah. that they were that they were empty. Um, I don't really have any thoughts on this Georgetown team. I've watched them. Um, I don't I have do. a ton they of thoughts. Suck. Well, those are my thoughts. All right. 244th defensively, 115th offensively. Uh, they got they got Primo Spears. Yeah, no, they, I mean, they yeah, just can't they, shoot they at all, which is not great and they don't rebound well either so that that seems to be like not a good combination can't shoot at all and also don't don't dominate the glass or the paint really so uh yeah i would i would hope xavier would be able to find a way to win that one yeah so that would mean that xavier would be going into a seton hall game next tuesday night on a five game winning streak assuming xavier can take care of southern this tuesday and then georgetown on friday and that would put you at a five-game winning streak and 1-0 in the Big East heading into Seton Hall, St. John's, Connecticut, Villanova, Creighton. A pretty pretty heavy stretch. You look at the start of this Big East schedule. St. John's, who's had a pretty good start to the season, they're 10-1 and with that loss to Iowa State. Then you have Nats on the road at 9 o'clock at Carnesecca. Then UConn, Villanova, Creighton, Marquette. Ooh. At Villanova, too, by the way. At Villanova. Yeah, they're starting to look week, like after a little bit off. more like Villanova all of a sudden. Yeah, Villanova is slowly climbing back out. They have three wins in a row. They had that win over Oklahoma, a nice win uh, over Oklahoma as you get Cam Whitmore back. Um, Justin Moore, I don't want to say for sure, but it does not sound like he's going to be available for this game. And again, we're talking about, we'll get more into Justin Moore later, but we're talking about a guy who tore his Achilles and is trying to come back here and, and like, eight or nine months from that when you look at Kevin Durant who took about what two years to be fully recovered from that injury I mean it's not a this is not a torn ACL rehab it standard you come back real easy I mean this is significant but just looking forward into this biggie schedule yeah it's 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 not the easiest start after uh Georgetown this week but he's into it with the Hoyas yeah, and we'll we'll podcast again before even the, the Seton Hall game comes around. But I do think that the Southern game would actually scare me more for Xavier than Georgetown. 
believe it or not, because Southern's going to come in and shoot a bunch of three. I realize Georgetown is on the road and it's a big East opponent and all that, but Southern's going to come in and try to shoot threes and try to do what gives Xavier trouble. Like the one thing Xavier has not done well this year is take away opponent teams, three point shooting. Part of that is due to the fact that they've played really good post players and they've had to double team that and given out kick out threes, things of that nature. But I would still be more scared of what Southern brings to the table than what Georgetown does because Georgetown just isn't very good and they play right into Xavier's strengths. Yeah. Southern is uh, 103rd in the country, three point percentage. They shoot it at 35.5%. Um, but other than that, you just see a whole lot of red on the uh, on the good old Ken Palm sheet there. So we'll we'll see what happens, which would be, I would say tomorrow night because usually we're, we record on Mondays, but that'll be Tuesday night. A little earlier pod here for the people. Um, Rick, anything else before I I've run out of things to talk about here? No, that's all I need. I think, I think we're good. Hopefully, uh, you guys enjoyed the game. You enjoyed whatever this breakdown was. We, we, we did our best. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was good, but we, we did our best and, um, you can check out musketeerreport.com. There's still a 50% off sale going on there. And the great thing about it is right now can't promote it publicly, but it is instant paramount plus with it when you sign up. Paramount Plus has a deal going on too, so um, you uh, that that's part of the deal. Make sure you you read the fine print on how to hook all of that up. But um, if if you look at that, you can also upgrade to an annual subscription right now. If you're currently a monthly person, you can upgrade to annual and still get that fifty percent off. A lot of times that's not the case. It's only for new subscribers that don't have a monthly subscription. So if you're monthly, you can upgrade. So check that out, musketeerreport.com. We have the website. Check it out and also. The Rebound Rundown, we love the Rebound Rundown. You uh, go to whatever podcast application you use, you search Rebound Rundown, you subscribe to Paul Fritchner's daily college basketball show. It recaps the night before, it previews the day ahead, it's 10 to 15 minutes for your commute to work or your walking of the dog. It's, uh, It's the best college basketball podcast daily show that's going right now, so you need to check it out. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it was top 50, top 60 basketball podcasts in the country last week. Thanks to everybody that uh, that was listening for the Crosstown Shootout Week. It was great. Best week of the show yet. Hell and yeah. uh, we've got some Big East previews and stuff coming up this week, and you'll be on. We're going to record right after this. So, um, all right. Well, thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you next week on the Musketeer Report podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody.